The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, and welcome to a spoiler special about True Detective Season 2, the season that was so incomprehensible it was impossible to distinguish between what was a spoiler and what was just the plot. I'm Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, and I'm joined today by Laura Bennett, a senior editor. Hi, Laura. Hi, Willa. And Ben Mathis Lilly, the editor of The Slatest and that very rare find, a true detective apologist. Hi, Ben. Uh, hi, that's me, yes. Um, the season was so bad, I think that even here at Slate Pitch headquarters, the only person Slate Pitchy enough to like this season was Ben, but that is wonderful news for this spoiler special because otherwise you'd have just had to listen to Laura and me commiserating about how bad this show was. Um, I want to get to what you liked about the show, Ben, almost immediately. Uh, but first, I just want to do a very quick synopsis of what I didn't like, which I think I can sum up as basically bad acting, bad writing, bad plotting, bad mystery. Uh, <laughs> there will be occasion to expound upon all of these things, I think. Um, but just very bad is the emergent consensus opinion on this season, and it is one that I share. Ben, tell me why I am wrong. <laughs> well, I guess first of all, that I think... was my best Ira Glass. Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah, that was really good. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I think that I think that you're probably. I, we're probably going to agree on on some things. I, I wouldn't say this is a great season. I didn't think it was as it was good as the first season. It's probably not something I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and, and rewatch. But I, there are a couple areas where I would uh, disagree and say that there were good things or at least not bad things about this season. Uh, first of all, I liked the characters, and, and I think I found in, in writing about the show and why I liked it, this is the one that most people besides me uh, sympathize with. <laughs> this is where I get the most positive response. I, you know, I like spending time with those characters. I was rooting for them in a sense, although I was somewhat appalled by them, which I think is how you're supposed to feel about characters in a show like this. Um, I, I actually, I know you're going to get into this, <laughs> but I actually liked hearing them talk. Uh, I, I liked the kind of elaborate and eccentric uh, ways that they talk to each other, uh, the dialogue of the show. And, and I like the actors. Um, I'm curious to hear your specific criticisms of all the actors because I thought that the four leads, with the exception of Taylor Kitsch, who I don't think was given much to do, uh, I thought the rest of them handled themselves pretty well. Um, the second thing I liked about it, I, I just liked being there. I think that when I read about this season, I thought, that's a, that's a great setting. Like That's a good idea to set a show in this tiny... Uh, kind of industrial, corrupt town in Los Angeles or outside Los Angeles. And I think that, you know, the show met met my expectations in that regard. Uh, just the actual visuals of it were interesting to me. Uh, the kind of what the peripheral characters did, you know, their, their backstories were interesting to me. And then the third thing, I guess, is the most abstract thing and maybe the most kind of personal idiosyncratic one to me is I just like the atmosphere of True Detective. And I think that what the first season had uh, was great atmosphere combined with a lot of other strengths. And I think the sec second season might not have had quite so many other strengths, but it still had this, this feeling of kind of being on the back porch after everyone else has gone to sleep and kind of reflecting and thinking about the past and your mistakes and what might have been. And I like that atmosphere. Uh, and I think that most of the scenes that I liked had that element to them. And, and so... Well, it did have some weaknesses. I think it was it was a, every week. I didn't have to force myself to watch it just because I knew I was the guy who defended True Detective. I actually looked forward to being there uh, in that world. Okay, so I think we're going to take your points and go backwards with them because that was my plan, coincidentally. Um, so I just I guess we should start by talking about then the atmosphere of the show, um, which I think we can sort of take more largely to be sort of Nick Pizzolatto. Uh, the creator of the show's whole gestalt, which I think includes how he plots shows um, 
what he thinks mysteries are for, what he doesn't think they're for, uh, how the characters talk, you know, and the sort of um, inherent darkness of his worldview. So, so I would say I liked that porch analogy, but I feel like when I think about the show, it's someone sitting on the porch, um, like an alcoholic, drunk out of his mind, just fell off the wagon and just murdered like 12 people <laughs> covered in blood sitting there thinking about how he's abused as a child. Like like that, like maybe it's silent for that person. <laughs> it's not like, it's not like a cozy, it's not like, oh, or, or even like in my youth, I had some rough times. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think the thing to me that was sort of the most um, interesting about this season not because it worked, but just sort of intellectually is. I think we can all admit that, you know, a d- mystery doesn't necessarily have to be totally coherent for it to be compelling. The Big Sleep is the perfect example of that. The Usual Suspects, you know, really complicated <laughs> mysteries that you only understand after you understand everything and you go back and resolve it. Um, and also that, you know, mysteries don't unfold like Law & Order episodes um, where everything comes to the people solving the case in coherent fashion and you can just sit in the room and be like, oh, the most famous guy did it. You know, like that's not that's not how life is. And I think that Pizzolatto made a real effort this season to sort of have the mystery unfold probably in a little more way than it would for real detectives, which is like the guy you met on the movie set that one time that you thought nothing of, like you should have thought more of him, you know. Mm-hmm. But there has to be some kind of compromise with the audience and and Pizzolatto so aggressively didn't compromise with the audience, like so didn't hold our hand in any way that it almost felt aggressive. And then just in the finale, they solved the mystery halfway through. The mystery, as he, and I think at last season when he was giving um, interviews about the first season of the show, he doesn't care about mysteries. It was always about these characters and these relationships. So my question is, if he doesn't care about mysteries, why make us do all this horrible work to understand what was going on? Why not just make something pretty coherent, and make it about the characters instead of this thing where you have to do all this labor to then get to the characters. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, well, I agree <laughs> with a lot of that, Willa. I mean, the one thing, I think this this season was, was a terrible season of television that uh, failed on many levels. But one thing, I, 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 for some reason, I kept watching. And in trying to, you know, have a conversation with myself about why I was continuing to watch the show, I think what it really came down to was the fact that there were these these torturous scenes of dialogue that were so let in, not just not propulsive, but like anti-propulsive. And they made you sort of like reel your brain to sort of go back in time. Like, what did I miss that's making me miss what's happening in this scene? But then just when you thought you were going to turn it off, there was some like intelligible set piece that maybe you didn't know who the characters were or sort of you know, how, why they were interacting with each other, but you knew what the stakes were. You knew sort of what you wanted from the characters and that every episode had enough of that kind of thing to sort of keep you going. So it was the guy in the bird mask. Uh, and I guess that was the end of the first episode. <laughs> I don't even... I mean, that's another thing. The episodes are all totally shuffled because the chronology was right, like the hooker not, party was right, kind of interesting. Oh, that was a really good scene. And I think I saw you tweeting about this, Willa, <laughs> that it was so good in part because there was no dialogue. Right. No dialogue. I mean, what are some of the dialogue scenes that stand out to you as being being like totally purple, basically. I mean, I think almost every Jordan and Frank interaction had a real a real special spin. A little little purple flavor to it. Jordan was perhaps the worst character on True Detective. That's controversial (laughs) opinion, but... No, I I think that, I mean, she was certainly like, has the most thankless part coupled with the most ridiculous lines. I actually, I have to confess that my um, secret, like, alt 
fantasy for like the storyline that was going to be revealed in the finale that never happened was somehow Austin Chassani, the mayor, yeah. um, was going to turn out to be Jewish because he at various points had <laughs> referred to... Vince Frank, Vince Vaughn's character as Boychick, and he had also said Fakakta. His name is Austin Chassani, by the way. Austin is not the name of any person in the world over the age of 40, and certainly not like an Italian guy, and it's it's totally preposterous to begin with. But that's also not a Jewish name, and I was like, maybe they like changed the name in Ellis Island to like, or or more recently, and the whole thing is They change the first name sometimes. It's real, real cases. And like this whole thing is going to be secretly anti-Semitic because there's all these Hasids with the diamonds, and like there's going to be a whole, like, there's a whole nother world of plot here, because Uh. it didn't make any sense to me. And also, I I feel like so many of the circum, like the so many of the elocution of the characters had the kind of backwardsness that Yiddish has, where you put the wow, you change your word order. Theory. It was because yeah. I was—I couldn't believe well, how. What was, the, it was. The, would, the, would there be a payoff really to learning they were all Jewish? Or no, was of course it just not. The, I was the, imagining like Nick Pizzolatto like spinning out some like this is the secret underbelly of like these guys too, you know, or some <laughs> other I- irrelevant character detail. None of that came to pass. Instead, Austin Chisani just said boy chicken for But I mean that—that that is like how convoluted I found the language. I was like, I kept thinking that he was trying to do something. And I guess I wonder also, do you guys think that that, the fact that so much of it felt so leaden or so weird had to do with the actors? Because, like, I mean, I know that, I think this was stylistically much different than season one, but it's not like Matthew McConaughey didn't have some speeches to give last season. Right. Uh, I think, I mean, this gets to the, the, the crucial issue, which is, is Vince Vaughn bad or good in True Detective? <laughs> and I think, I probably admit the consensus side story bad, but I am going to argue that he he gave a good performance, in part because of that dialogue, and I realize this might this might not be something that a lot of people agree with, but I, I enjoyed its kind of, like, verbosity and confusingness, and I thought that, I mean, to me, it seemed clearly intentional, and, I'm, and I know that there's a specific line that you're going to refer refer to later about the heart. Uh, oh, let's just do it. <laughs> what is it? Blue balls of the heart? That's right. I mean, that actually Classic. line is so perfectly horrible because it's not even elegant in the way some of the other ones were kind of elegant. Like, right. blue balls of the heart is like bro hallmark. <laughs> My reading of the Vince Vaughn character, and I think this is coherent and it might be too generous, is that he's supposed to be this person who's essentially self-made, right? I mean, well, I think that they really hammered that home, that his dad did not put him on a path to success, <laughs> let's say. Um, his dad, in fact, locked just, him in a rat basement. And made him smash a rat. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I, my interpretation of, of Vince Vaughn's strange manner of speaking was that he fancied himself this person who was going to rise from, from poverty to become an impressive person and that he thinks impressive people talk in a fancy way. And even I would even give you, they sort of, he had a gangsterese to his yeah. style of speaking that presumably he could have picked up from movies and other yeah. things. I mean, but this is actually one of those, um, you know, Pizzolatto obviously has so many influences, but he is so kind of hesitant to share what those influences are overtly. Like, obviously, there's references to everything. I don't think he would deny that there's references to everything. But he kind of, in some way, it feels like he wants so much credit that he doesn't make things transparent. Or it's sure. like, people have grown up watching The Godfather. They want to talk like The Godfather. You right. have him watching The Godfather. Everyone understands what's happening. And this, he didn't do that. So right. you're, like, left to imagine that Frank has concocted this speech pattern all by himself when maybe he's just like aping someone. And I feel like that what Ben just said is a generous characterological reading of the <laughs> Frank. I've got a lot of but, those. 
my main question was, you know, was it a, a misuse of Vince Vaughn? Like, there were certain moments that felt like Vince came alive. Like, that scene where he beat up that guy on the side of the road, the, I don't even remember who the guy he beat up was. That's how, you know, I yeah, processed it was not, the plot. It was not relevant. No, it was not relevant at all. But <laughs> I you actually could see, don't remember what right, you're talking there you go. about. And it stuck in my mind because you saw some of the sort of mischief that animated. I mean, obviously, his swingers is a very different role, but, like, that's Vince Vaughn's best mode. And it's not purely comedic it's like menacing and there's an edge he had a straight up swingers line in the finale right Right. what was it in swingers yeah what's his line like you're so money and you don't even know it he said that in the finale I missed it I don't think he said that (laughs) but he said something very swingersy and it was like a breath of fresh air in the second that he said it I actually feel so much sympathy for Vince Vaughn because I think he was like I'm gonna take this part in this heralded show and I'm gonna show everyone I can act and director I feel really insecure about this Nick Pizzolatto I feel really worried about this you're gonna make sure that I do a great job and they were like totally never smile yep. suppress all your personal yeah. charisma say all these lines and it's gonna be great smash a guy in the face with a bottle and have no fun while doing it <laughs> yeah and, and yeah. he did exactly what was asked of him and it kind of stank and I yeah. think that if he had just had a little bit more of his own flair on it the character would have been much better and, and great like if he was giving a more of a stereotypical Vince Vaughn performance I think Frank Semyon would have been uh, much more appealing character, even with exactly the, the similarity same of dialogue. his last name to the word semen is uh, is a mystery that we, <laughs> that is not even clear to me. Perhaps that's the maybe mystery. it's not a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's just totally intentional. Um, I did think, though, for some reason, that Colin Farrell as Ray Valcoro, I thought he came out of this looking pretty good. He, I think, he escaped the True Detective. The new True Detective curse. The new True Detective curse. I totally agree. I think that was probably, when I say I, I liked spending time with these characters, I think he's the person that that is most specifically true of. I mean, just his face. I mean, he did such a good job of being wounded. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really is, you know, it's kind of a stock character, the wounded uh, tough guy. Um, but he was so unlike, his eyes were so unlike any other wounded tough guy I think I've ever watched <laughs> that it was kind of fascinating to uh, to to yeah. see him every episode, and I think the the moment that that actually hit that uh, home for me was when uh, he and uh, Rachel McAdams' character, Ani Bezzarides, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Antigone <laughs> Bezzarides. Yep. Thank God that they did not <laughs> to refer to her as Antigone, Antigone the entire time. I, it was a that was a blessing. They, so they you know they have a romantic encounter in a cabin as one does when when one's investigating a mystery, and Colin Farrell takes his shirt off, and you can see that he in real life is still Colin Farrell who has like very like defined abs <laughs> and you remember like oh right that's an extremely handsome actor who f- maybe five years ago was considered one of like the biggest heartthrobs um, so to me he actually had kind of disappeared into this fat yeah. old cokehead piece of crap role <laughs> yeah. and I didn't remember you know so I think that's that's to me is what uh, stands out as, uh, as someone who gave a great performance do you think they were directed to all speak through like as if speaking through a Bane mask or as Ben has said a surgical mask what, my, my dad's one line impression of the show is uh, I have to go to the bathroom <laughs> so that is not a very good impression 
<laughs> character. I bet, I bet your dad's impression is like yeah, marginally it's, it's better it's than better. that. It's, it's slightly deeper. <laughs> or as, but, uh, yeah. as Vince Vaughn's character would put it, we all have to go to the bathroom sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. The bathroom, we have to go. <laughs> it was really strikingly similar, all of the like the rumbliness and all of yeah. their voices. Well, I, I yeah. tweeted this. Yeah. You should never, by the way, I'm breaking a rule. You're never allowed to say what you tweeted <laughs> in <laughs> real life. <laughs> but I tweeted okay. like that his uh, that Nick Pizzolatto's, um, <laughs> like, you know, sop to feminism was he was going to prove that male vocal fry was really a thing. Oh, I did see that tweet. That was a good one. And it, yeah. he really did. And at some point in the finale, I was like, if Colin Farrell's voice gets any croakier... Will he turn into a frog? <laughs> I had that was the, that was one moment where like there were certain threads that I was defending as the true de- uh, true detective defender throughout the year, and for halfway through the season, I was kind of like, no, this plot isn't too complicated. And then in episode six and seven, I had to kind of be like, this plot is, is too complicated. Most of the season, I was also saying, well, yeah, I can hear what they're saying. You just have to listen pretty closely. And especially in the finale, I had to admit I could not understand sometimes what they were saying. I want to uh, take like a little bit of a. Uh, um, a not popular position, which is I actually think Taylor Kitsch was pretty good on this show, <laughs> I too. Agree. I agree. Um, and I saw, you know, I actually, I've seen a lot of people be like, this storyline about him being a closeted cop, like, why doesn't he know? It's 2015 and it's all cool and, uh, like, what's his what's the big deal, basically? But I thought that that character was totally, really compelling. Like, he had, to me, in a way, the most legible emotional Journey, like, not a fantastical... I mean, obviously, there was fantastical elements for it. He worked for this Blackwater company. He was, like, a super assassin, basically. But th- th- it was there was something about it that was sort of the most concrete. It was, like, pretty straightforward. Like, he doesn't want anyone to know he's gay. He's gay. He's miserable. He's closeted. He's trying to, have a, he's trying to fake his life. Um, and I thought he actually did a really good job. I was sad that he died because, I mean, this title, True Detective, I don't... You know, it means whatever we want it to mean. But, like, I'd seen someone be like, he's sort of, like, in the context of the show, like, the true detective. He's, like, actually, like, a decent dude who's doing this not for, not to try to get custody of his son, not, you know, to, like, find out someone else is corrupt, not for any nefarious reasons, just because it's, like, a good thing to do. And he really just wants to ride his motorcycle and... Uh, solve crimes. Something that we can all identify with. <laughs> totally, just a relatable totally. character. Yeah, I mean, he really bounced back from that end of the first episode, close up on his face on the motorcycle, just like feeling all the pain in the world. I was like, this right. is going to be rough. But he did. I thought he did a good job. I was, I was sad that he died. I was also sad that he died. And I hate to jump to this too quickly because I think we're going to get there. But I would compare his nicely legible emotional trajectory with Colin Farrow's also, Farrell's also pretty legible emotional trajectory in that... He has this kid, and he really wants to be with the kid, and he wants to be the kid's father, and he's not sure if he is. That I really disliked as a plot because it just felt like another example of Nick Pizzolatto's sort of themes and ideas incarnated. Like, can as he said in the Vanity Fair profile, him, can anyone love adequate, adequately? Like, that's what we're getting <laughs> with like this relationship between the son and the father. Why isn't that you an know? okay question to ask? I feel oh. like that's a re- entirely reasonable question to ask about about all people. That is a reasonable <laughs> question, but I just didn't. Well, find I think it. I think it's actually it isn't. It isn't because I think honestly, like most people who are lucky enough to have had like a nice childhood. The answer is like totally. People can love that. It's not, it's yeah. like it's like I mean, a brain twister that's right. not. You know, like you maybe can't people... love perfectly, but adequately seems quite <laughs> like an attainable goal. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about the theme. Halfway through the, the last episode, we basically discover who killed Ben Casper, which was ostensibly the subject of this 
season. And then there was 45 more minutes of the show uh, to follow our three main characters as they, um, you know, die and go to Venezuela. So, so much of that was also about the subject of parenting, right? Like, Ray basically dies because he wants to say goodbye to his son, and that sort of gets him caught. Uh, Ani ends up having a baby, Ray's baby. You know, Frank is walking through the desert, sees his dad. Could be Frank's, could be Frank's baby? I think it could be, but I think they sort of made it pretty clear. Right, when they did the, the baby end, swap. When they did the baby swap, yeah, that yeah. Ani's... You mom. always give the baby back to the real mother last. <laughs> right. That's a rule of, <laughs> rule of drama. And, and also, yeah. I think we have to like believe that Jordan really couldn't have kids. Right. So, you know, if, if there was any sort of resonance to this parenting plot that sort of had been I mean in Ani's relationship with her own dad then we found you know the fact that Ben Casper was the father of Laura and killed her mother you know all of this stuff did it amount to anything like did you did you feel like you learned something about the bond you know and I think sort of the adoption storyline some of the stuff that Jordan and Frank were talking about like you don't you don't want to adopt a kid because you think it's you basically right (laughs) sort of mumbo jumbo like is that actually added up to anything or well I think it had the problem that uh, that that a lot of the threads had which is just that you didn't really have time to I mean I mean how much do we really know about Annie's relationship with her father I mean that that entire relationship arced in probably three scenes it really just had a beginning scene a middle (laughs) scene and an ending scene I kept expecting more about the good people and it just never happened yeah Yeah. especially when you have is it David David Morse with long hair uh, yeah, and also that storyline of all of them seemed the most sort of resonant with season one, right? Where you're like, oh, there's like this creepy kind of cult situation. Like, let's that's that's really true detective. Let's find out more about that. And yeah, he was like, right. nope, don't, not this time. No, I mean, I think that I think that the parenting, I, the parenting stuff, except with the exception of Ray, and you know, and that was kind of like a base. It was a pretty basic plot, yeah. you know. Give me, my, I think that's the plot in um, the fake movie Interested Development, <laughs> which is homeless dad, and he says, "I just want my kids back." Uh, that was basically Ray's character. <laughs> Beat too, mm-hmm. but that at least like I mean I I like yeah. I, I felt a little lick tug at the heartstrings when he had the kid had the the yeah. shield on the picnic table at the end of the also that was the schoolyard that most looks like a prison yard mm-hmm. in it, the history it, of schoolyards <laughs> like maybe it was a prison yard um, but yeah with the others I mean you know you you didn't have time to find out much yeah. about Annie you you there's this Vince Vaughn thing uh, you know you had the rat monologue and then you had the guy showing up at the end in the in the hallucination. This raises two important points. One, gender. Let's just we're gonna get mm-hmm. we're gonna table that. Good one. Two, the black guys teasing Vince Vaughn in the desert. What the <laughs> what, guys? I actually almost feel like that is a Pandora's box that is too hot to touch. Like I Yeah, I, I um I would not have made that choice <laughs> if I were Nick Pizzolato. <laughs> I saw that scene and I hoped. Ben or Willa will know what that meant and that it'll have some deep resonance and it well, won't just Well, I know be, what it meant. Well, yeah, I, I it'll mean something other than what it meant. Okay, well, I so, think it's, he's from Chicago. He grew up in a, a tough neighborhood and, and unfortunately, right. the way that was chosen to represent Unfortunately, that, was, that is what it Tough neighborhood meant. was a black neighborhood. And I think that's... Right, and, and five black guys teasing him, not even pretty, not even really seriously, right. is like a core memory for him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, right, and and uh, yeah, like a core trauma, mm-hmm. and and right, and uh, that was another. It was kind of like an unpleasant thing that came up. Was Frank is racist, and also not super explored until maybe that moment. Yeah, but like he, he, yeah, he did make like a racially insensitive remark about almost everyone possible. Totally, he used the word kike. He referred to the Mexicans in all sorts of 
unpleasant ways. But I think that almost needed to be much more developed if we're going to get this scene at the end. Yes. Not that that scene at the end would have explained why he's racist, but it's like at this, in the sort of very superficial way that it was explored, that beat was really glaringly bad. Just was, also their shoes and their clothing were kind of I think out it was, of they were supposed to be 80s. Yeah. Like it was supposed to be his childhood. Right. So they were supposed to be sort of like run DMC era gold chain. Yes, that scene was glaringly bad and I wished it away while watching that yeah. final sequence, but overall, I found that last stretch in the desert to be probably one of the most compelling. This might be an unpopular opinion, but I just really liked I liked that final moment when Jordan said to him, "Oh, honey or whatever, this is not this is a, an approximation. You know, you stopped moving a long time yeah. ago." And that was really striking. Well, it's interesting because I thought that scene and then also the Conway Twitty sort of dream sequence at the beginning of episode 3 were some of the more uh, arti- like elegant and certainly artistically fresh moments in the show, and they were so few and far between. Like you kind of wished he had gotten more surreal more often, maybe. Totally, and mm-hmm. I think that that takes us back to something I was going to mention before, which is if I had to justify the convolutedness of the plot, I would say that it was it was trying to. To, like you said, trying to kind of numb you in the way that you might if you were actually investigating a complicated uh, conspiracy that was much too large for you to ever control or solve, you might start to feel kind of, of numb and overwhelmed. And I think that maybe that he was going for a little of that and went for way, way, way too much of it mm-hmm. because certainly we did come to feel numbed but not in the meaningful way, just right. in the, like, I don't really want to know more about these these mortgage papers or whatever kind of right. Way. And I think that you're right. If, if, if we had had a little less characters 7 through 11 from Vinci and a little more of this kind of with the Kelly Riley character, with, the, with um, Ray and his dad, yeah. that this season might have been successful for Yeah, I people. mean, it was really remarkable how all of these people that were important to the mystery, like you didn't know their names. Uh-huh. Like they just didn't, like Holloway. Like you actually had to look up who Chief Holloway was. That's the guy who Paul met in the dark alley and who Ray met when he was wearing a cowboy hat at the train station <coughs> to do sort of the trade for the disappeared hard drive. Right. Which, yeah. again, like, what is the op- opposite of a deus ex machina? That was the hard drive. Like, right. an erasus ex machina? Like, it just, like, didn't, it just, it was like, oh, right, the, it doesn't really exist. Well, that, I think, has a, a rich, you know, I mean, yeah. it's the MacGuff- MacGuffin, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the thing that it turns out to not have any meaning at all. Yeah. But it's so true that so many pivotal scenes relied on the sort of pinprick of recognition of seeing someone's face that we just didn't have. Exactly. And then the flip side was, like, maybe Pizzolatto was just so aggressively saying, you're not going to know who any of these people are. Well, I are. mean, the other yeah. counterpoint is that it's possible he was spoiled by the attention that was paid to the first season, which, right, like... If in the first season everyone was pouring over every detail so exactly that not everyone, but enough enough people and everyone was so engaged that like the guy that showed up in episode three, like people knew all about him. You did know who that guy on the lawnmower was. Right. Right. And and in this case, because it sort of was so hazy and lost us, we didn't know who that guy in episode three was. Yeah. I mean I there were so many scenes that were that you could just sort of feel Pizzolatto indulging his own kind of lyrical fascination with perverts and freaks that like (laughs) you're at the sex party and it's I mean that was a really good scene, but it was a good sex party too. Yeah, like remember from scene one, the the Yellow King, like sorry for this verb, but like diddling his 
disabled. That was another uh, thing. Like, why did that even happen? I will say, I actually, you said at the beginning, that Ben, that you thought the Vinci setting was, like, very evocative. And I actually think compared to last season, it wasn't. Like, I think it was a really cool idea for a setting. That, And this might be the directing thing, that they, like, that Carrie Fukunaga, who directed the first season, was not present for the second season, which was directed by a number of different people. Uh, I don't think they captured the vibe of the place as well as they could have given how obviously vibey it was. Yeah, I think that there were certain parts of it that uh, had that uh, kind of flair that you're looking for, like Ray living next to the police state or city yeah. hall or what, what have you. And then obviously like the interstitial shots were, you know, pretty mm-hmm. well composed and kind of cool to look at. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the theme that, I, that we're coming back to is like a lot of possibly good ideas and maybe just too many ideas. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with that. Wait, so let's let's just go back to gender stuff because I think that among other things, I think you can think about the finale also as kind of response to what happened in season one for a variety of reasons, which Ben included in his piece for Slate.com about uh, why this season was better than people think, basically. But um, And he pointed out in that piece that as opposed to last season, which some people crit- criticized it for being a sort of an overly sentimental ending where Marty and Russ both lived, everyone basically dies except for Ani in this one. And in this one, the only people who live are the women, and there were no really female characters in the first season at all. Um, But I feel like even as we're talking, it's becoming clear that of all of the fleshed-out main protagonists, Ani was the least fleshed-out. Like, we got the least of her backstory. She was sort of, in some ways, the least legible. Um, And so she and Jordan had this kind of ridiculously thankless, you know, gangster mole with more lines part. So... I mean, what do you guys think about how he... And, and also, uh, some of Ani's lines, I mean, that really, like, took the stuff on. Like her, you know, in her sex yep. discrimination class mm-hmm. and various other things. Everything's just fucking whatever. You know, there's lots of... There's she lots, didn't say She didn't say that. Fucking. She said everything is... You know, there's <laughs> things other than fucking or whatever. Uh, excuse our language. Those are mm-hmm. direct quotes from this television mm-hmm. show. Um, what did you guys think of her? Well, one interesting experience I had while uh, editing Ben's piece on the finale, which is terrific, and everyone should check it out, is that gave her Ben a lot of insight into my psych- my psyche that she right. maybe did not have before. And I I'm, can almost I'm going to cite another tweet, but I'm not. I'm so sorry, but you should go read. I'm Ben's really sorry. I feel like I am. Um, that this is something that was between me and Ben, and now it's between us and the podcast <laughs> listening public, but. And had a line in his piece about identifying with the characters. Basically, I just and I was like, "How? How you identify with these characters? To me, they are just like, you know, pizzolato quotes with legs. Like I just I can't even." And and it made me wonder whether it, there's a different male experience viewing experience versus female experience. So I wanted to hear, you know, what you well, guys think about that. I wanted to interject and say I'm so excited to, that you said that. I do want to talk about Ani for a little more of a second, but. Um, in sort of talking about the show, and again, now we're going to sort of be sharing personal internal emails <laughs> among Slate.com employees. Um, Slate.com is a thing that Dan Coy says all the time. It's just That's Slate. Right. Sorry. Slate. Slate magazine. <laughs> Slate. Um, that, that you've said, Ben, basically, which is like part of what you think some of the critique of the season about is, is there sort of anything really interesting left in the tortured white male experience? And, uh, or are we just so exhausted with that that this show is going to get a bum rap no matter what it does? I want to circle back to that. I just want to make sure we're finished talking about gender and Ani. Any thoughts? Well, I think this could be a segue. I mean, I can say, well, I can answer the question of why I related to the characters, and perhaps it is for others to judge whether that has to do with gender. I mean, I'm not going to say that the reason I 
do is because they're men or because because all men think this way. Um, But... I mean, the way I relate to these characters is not that I've murdered anybody. <laughs> um, it's it's not that I'm a detective or a gangster. Um, but the, the thing that I think that is, I actually kind of expect to be fairly common was re- that it was relatable was that the theme of these people who have kind of messed up their personal lives and uh, instead of dealing with that, they work on something, which goes also ties back to the, the like, what well, does Nick Pizzolatto care about a mystery? Kind of, no, he just, it's, it's these people take a goal. And this is not a new trope in detective or police uh, kind of uh, fiction, but they replace their like personal goals with a, any goal, anything in their in their work lives and that for these people happens to be solving a crime. So to them they're just solving this crime as kind of a distraction um, and uh, they become obsessed with it because that they don't want to think about what else is going on in their lives. Um, and I'm not saying I feel that way <laughs> now, but I feel like I, I mean if anyone who has you know been ever been sad or depressed or, or th- felt bad about anything, probably has tried to distract themselves by working. Uh, and I think that that is a part of it that is pretty relatable. And I, I don't think that's a particularly male feeling. It's so. interesting because the words that you say make sense to me. <laughs> but I cannot say that I feel related yeah. to any of those characters. Like, I think that that's right, what you're saying. But yeah. something about how it was presented, that's not what... It didn't come through to me almost that it was like they were getting through with the work because also they were all I mean Ray was was a bad cop he didn't care I mean he sort of found this redemption by finally caring about his work I mean I think at the end someone's like we never knew you were this competent that was a funny line a funny thing in True Detective that's the one thing I'm going to stick to is that there were many funny lines I think there were actually way more funny lines than we got to hear because they were presented as not funny lines I think if you read the script you'd be like oh that's a funny line that they made not funny and I think that's a direction issue but um you know, it's interesting because when I, I have to confess that I, when I think about things that I identify with, I mean, I really loved the first season of True Detective, so it doesn't necessarily have to have a woman in it, but it certainly doesn't hurt, you know? Yeah. And, and actually, I even, like, I love it when there's love stories. Like, I'm such a sucker for that. And so, like, the fact that Ani and Ray got together, like, should usually have been, like, great. I actually like Nick Pizzolatto's, like, dedication to love, like, to mm-hmm. not love, not that um, Russ and, <laughs> what was Marty's wife's name? Uh, Michelle Monaghan's character knows, right? yeah. I forgot about you know not that there was a love story but like I mm-hmm. thrill to those sorts of things but I thought that them getting together in this was like take it or leave it like I kind of didn't I didn't really care very much I think that in this one he really he wanted to sort of like ma- he wanted not to make up for it personally like to prove himself above sort of criticism about the female character thing and I don't think he's super great at writing women no and and, and it's like a reason yeah. he should have a writer's room for lots of reasons like he should have a writer's room because they would have helped him sort out this plot stuff and mm. they would have you know streamlined some stuff for him and given Ani some lines that like she could have plausibly said Right. And nothing about Ani like, registered as particularly sort of female to me. She talked in the same way as the right. other characters. She the same sort of anxieties and hang-ups as the other characters. Um, I didn't think the Velcoro-Bezerides coupling arose from any kind of interesting tension, just like desperation. And it didn't. I thought she was just as likely to end up with, I mean... Yeah, you yeah, know, like, it's, it's interesting, you know, in the beginning yeah. where she had that... Not um, gay. Not the beginning, but in, in one of the early conversations she had with Velcoro where she's like, you have... Imagine what it would be like to be a person walking around every day and and any man could just murder you. I mean, I'm paraphrasing badly, but, like, could you... Like, this, the, the anxiety, not just of being a cop, but just of being a woman, where you can constantly just be 
murdered. Which is why you guys both carry knives. large knives I mean, I have at all times. seven it's, on me right now. In my holster right now. <laughs> um, and, like, I feel like, in a way... So that's not untrue, but I feel like Pizzolatto was like, aha, mm-hmm. I have unlocked the key to the female <laughs> psyche. This is my way in. And I have, under- like, especially a cop. And, like, it's not even that that's not, like, an interesting <laughs> thought or a-, a entry point. But it's not, like, the only one. And it's like he could only get in on this way of violence. Like, that's the only way he and could. And with a backstory of abuse, he had yeah. to sort of hand her that. And then but just, I, think, yeah. I think he has his own history with abuse. Mm-hmm. So that is actually, like, connecting him personally to her. But, like, interesting. I. I, it's it's like he was he I think he was making a good faith effort, but there's just like some he doesn't there's something wrong there. Like he doesn't quite understand how to write women, and and he's not gonna get it. Yeah, I mean you like you talked about the ending. Uh, y- you know you have you have the two the two women su- surviving and kind of and being uh, in that last scene being active in a way that mm-hmm. I think it was really fortunate that the last act was not just to leave the men to die, which is this <laughs> terrible kind of trope right. of fem- of women in, in these kind of movies. No, you have to go. Right. Like, I'm the man who can take the punishment. Um, that showing that, that uh, Rachel McAdams and Kelly Riley were kind of conspiring to bring down the Vinci mob from And afar. rescue their men's reputations. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I think that that, that was uh, uh, fortunate that he, that he did that. Yeah, and I actually have to say... In a- the scene of them, like, in their sun hats at night, I was like, cool movie to be. Like, I would watch that, but, of course, like, he wouldn't. It was like, oh, this is, like, this is when it turns into Thelma and Louise. But, right, and so he hadn't really set that up in, you know, episodes two through six, you know, <laughs> and that's the that's the problem with this, you know, yeah. is that you didn't know much about them besides that you learned very late in the season that Rachel McAdams had been abused and then... Uh, or, or at least you saw more about it. No, the, it's true. The, we didn't really learn it for sure until the, the party The scene. hallucination, yeah. So um, just to, like, wrap it up, I think, what do you guys want? What do you expect? What do you hope for? What do you fear about True Detective Season 3? Well, I mean, I was thinking, trying to think about the difference between Season 1 and Season 2 and why I enjoyed Season 1 so much more. And I think, fundamentally, it was just the tension between Marty's sort of standard-issue sinner trying to be good and Rust's brooding nihilism, sort of believing in nothing. Those two bumping up against each other, that's what made, like, the car scenes feel sort of emotionally or psychologically claustrophobic rather than just dramatically airless. Like, they made—there was comedy in that tension. It was also they were really good actors and they had a nice rapport themselves, but— uh, somehow having all of these main characters with sort of roughly equivalent temperaments and worldviews just kind of like fractured the whole, like the te- the tension wasn't the same, dynamic wasn't as interesting. Um, and so I sort of think just at a very basic level, lim- limiting the number of main characters and sort of putting them in opposition to each other in some way would be more interesting. Um, I'd like it to be set in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, that's I, not bad. I mean, it's good work. Good work. <laughs> I mean, it has to be somewhere where the overhead shots will be will be exciting. Mm-hmm. No, I, I totally agree with that, and I think that um, having like someone who can who can deliver the com- like the comedy a little yeah. more uh, like it, that, that will provide some tension relief to the yeah. discussions, which is mm-hmm. you know I enjoyed. Uh, all these kind of like really morose conversations, but I totally agree. I mean, the fi- I, my favorite moment from uh, from season one is when they're they're meeting with the woman who had worked for 
the I, the bad the bad guys the woman who had worked long time ago as a, as like a housekeeper or something uh, for the for the bad guys and was and go, starts rambling about Carcosa. Um, oh, oh, yeah, oh, season one, yeah, <laughs> season, one. Yes, yes, season yes, one, sorry, and <laughs> and they come outside. And the and her, I think, younger daughter apologizes and says, I don't know what she was talking about. Matthew McConaughey says, oh, I understood exactly what she was talking about. And the woman, the younger woman, looks at him and just says, that should worry you, <laughs> mister. Um, and that was the kind of line that was missing. Although, in my two. recollection of that scene, that also like wasn't really played for laughs. I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think that this season... And Nick Pizzolatto said this in the Vanity Fair profile. The only thing that connected this season and last season was his sensibility. And all due respect to his sensibility, we could use, like, some more connective tissue. And I think in addition to it being a mystery, in addition to it probably being about fewer detectives, in addition to maybe it having more play through time, I think that was a really interesting part of season one and and. I think he sort of tried to have some of it in this season because he, we sort of have this back history about Ray's wife's rapist, but it really ends up just playing out in the present. I think, like, he should lean into some of that weird, creepy, surreal stuff. Like, totally. the occult history of transportation, which is what supposedly the season was right. about. Dude, I still am interested in the occult <laughs> history of transportation, and I wish that this had been more of that. And I think it's cool to lean into the conspiracy stuff. And I think it also lends itself to the kind of fanaticism a viewer like the the fanatic like the viewer fanaticism that was in season one is like if you want to give us a real mystery like for people just to go crazy over like make it super weird and creepy and have all this like culty strange stuff and there was like hints of it in this but they didn't he, he didn't really do it and he I, really just teased us with that bird head totally right. yeah. that was weird bird yeah, head. and uh, he teased us with a bird head with a cult with like all this stuff I mean this is the guy that's the thing that's so strange about watching these shows is that he is really good on the occult on the surreal and then as he I think this was also in the Vanity Fair profile that's sort of our text here <laughs> is that he read the thousand page long practical homicide investigation textbook and that's what made this like gave new meaning to the word procedural there's like so much procedure here yeah. limit that like amp up the more the weird mystery. wacky stuff right so lighter cheerier more occult more humor <laughs> yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, the yukon <laughs> totally um and good luck to all of the actors who take this part on we will be holding you to the mcconaughey standard you should probably run. Um, I think that's it from us on season two of True Detective. That's all that needs to be said. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Slate Spoiler Specials. This episode was produced by Jason DeLeon. Joel Meyer is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Thanks a lot for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.